in the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You have heard it said that one man's trash is another man's treasure, and it's true. And so if any of you have, you know, a 1978 presidential gold Rolex and you just don't want it anymore, you know, just send it my way, I'll take it, you know, I have a thing for old watches, I'm going to go with it. I, I was looking at this blog the other day, um, Michelle Rayburn writes this blog, and it's actually called Trash to Treasure Decorating. I don't know why I got there, but I was, was perusing along and I found this. And, and it's really great, she has all these photos where she takes and uh, repurposes things for, um, for home decor use, so she sort of takes uh, old junk and makes it into art. And so if you're looking for just the right rubbish for your fireplace mantle, I'll give you the website. You'll go there and check it out. This one thing she did, she took this old liquor decanter and emptied it out and put in these uh, pine needles and somehow got pine cones down in there and these beautiful like centerpiece. I thought, wow, that was really fancy. She took this cupboard door. And it was an old cupboard door, took that, the hardware off of the side. You know how a cupboard door had hardware on the side. She moves it up to the top, put another one that matches it on the bottom, and turned it into a serving tray, suitable for bringing, you know, your husband breakfast in bed, which I promptly forwarded to Mrs. Boisel so that she might find out how she could do that. But it's really great, all these little uh, things that she has. And, and the blog goes on and on. All these sort of pages after page of these photos where you could take, you know, these old pieces of discarded whatever and turn them into works of art. She even showed how you could make an outdoor sofa from a, uh, from a shipping pallet. You know, those old ship, the really nasty old, and, and what a fantastic, you know, outdoor piece. All kinds of great stuff. Um, another interesting website you might want to find sometime is one called FreeCycle. Have you ever heard of this? FreeCycle.org? The idea of free cycle is that um, the world is filled with all sorts of garbage. And so instead of going out and buying something, why don't you look for something that you need that somebody has two of? So if someone has two vacuum cleaners, for instance, and you need a vacuum cleaner, the person with two vacuum cleaners puts it out on the site, free vacuum cleaner. You are looking for a vacuum cleaner. You find it. You go pick it up. And voila, look, you've made a friend. You've saved some money. You have a new vacuum Well, enough. Almost new vacuum cleaner, anyway. And you save the planet in this way. You know, so this sort of thing. There's even one for Hudson. Free cycle, and then you can go to the Hudson community and, and find it. Sometimes what one person thinks is trash turns out to be, for someone else, treasure, doesn't it? But other times, what one person thinks is trash... They think that because it, in fact, is garbage, right? I mean, some people's trash is really other people's trash, too. It's just the same stuff. Um, I, I noticed on this website uh, there is a, this uh, sort of, you know, free listings, and some of them were ridiculous. I mean, like, you know, free, 1978 Whirlpool washing machine. Hasn't worked since Reagan was president. But its chartreuse color is as pristine as the day it was made. So, you know, if you pick it up, you can have it. No, thank you. I don't want it, right? I saw you could go down to Talmadge. I'm not kidding. I mean, I'm not making this up, really. Down in Talmadge, someone listed an open box of grits. <laughs> so if you want someone's open box of grits, so you can go down to Talmadge and get it for free. No thank you, right? Somebody else listed a mystery box. Please take the whole box, it says. Take whatever out that you, you want, 
put whatever you don't want in and then pass it along, you know? And i got to be honest, I'm really intrigued by this one. I you know, almost drove down and picked this one up because I just wanted to know what was in there. Sometimes one person's trash is another person's treasure. Sometimes one person's trash is another person's trash. The art, of course, is to figure out which is which, right? Jesus, in the Gospel, is sitting down and he's having dinner with some people of dubious reputation. He is doing what no respectable rabbi in the first century would ever do. He's having dinner with people who are called tax collectors. These are people who are known to be um, extortionists, not extortionists, as in they don't extort their body, but they extort money out of people, right? They, they, they're thieves, basically. They're, they're, they're legalized criminals. Other people who are there, prostitutes, common thieves, people known to be rampant adulterers. I mean, he is sitting down and having dinner with some of the worst of the worst. And this is causing quite a stir in the religious community. I mean, this is not the sort of thing that he should be doing. He's spending more time with these sorts of people than he is with the respectable religious folks. He's not hanging out as much with the the people who are of good reputation as he is people of poor reputation. He doesn't seem to understand social convention. Jesus doesn't seem to get the whole religious protocol. He's not with the right people. He's with all the wrong people. And this, uh, this continued ignorance that goes throughout Luke's Gospel only seems to infuriate the religious people more and more. The people who were pious, who were devout, who, who went to synagogue week after week after week, they saw in Jesus someone who just simply infuriated them. And you sense, if you read closely Luke's Gospel, it, the pressure begins to mount all the way through. I remember my wife used to have a, she used to do this canning and, and she would have a, this pressure cooker. You remember those pressure cookers? And like steam would come out. But you had to watch it because if you let it build up too much, I mean, it could explode in there, you know? So this is what's happened. By the time we get to Luke 15, oh, it's about to explode. The religious professionals are angry with Jesus. And do you know why they're angry with him? Because he socializes with human trash. He's hanging out with all sorts of riffraff, with the dregs of the earth, with the worst of the worst. He's spending time with all the wrong people. Listen again to Luke 15, verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes. Pharisee is a, it's a code word, not for bad guy. It's a code word for pious ones. The religious people, the devout people, and the devout people, and the scribes, the people who copied down the Bible word for word. These people are called scribes because the scribe means to write. They, they wrote down, they copied the Bible word for word from one to another in order to make copies. They were the human printing press that were in charge of watching the integrity of the scriptures. These aren't bad people. They're very good people. And here, listen to what they're saying in verse 2. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. I mean, you can almost hear the indignity, can't you? He welcomes and eats with them. I can't believe it. It's a complaint. And it's a complaint Jesus does not deny because if he did, he would be in real trouble because you can look through page after page in Luke's Gospel. He's spending time frequently with all the wrong people. He has people sitting at his table who are called thieves and whores and philanderers. 
These are the people who are sitting at his table. And it is, it is outrageous. And it brings up a question. It forces a question. Why in the world is he doing this? Why is he sitting here with these people? And Jesus, in the balance of chapter 15, begins to answer that question. A question no one asks, but everyone assumes. It, it, it's an accusation, really, isn't it? He does this. Not, why are you doing this? But he answers the question. He answers the question, and he does it in this way. He, he, he first gives two little hypothetical scenarios. I mean, suppose one of you had a hundred sheep, and one of them went missing. You'd go off hunting all over the countryside till you found it, wouldn't you? And he, I imagine he looks over, and there's probably a woman in the crowd. And suppose this woman here, she had ten coins, and she lost one of them. Which one of you wouldn't tear your house to pieces looking for that money? I assure you I would. <laughs> you know, where is it? Looking under between, you know, furniture pieces and the like. And then Jesus tells him a story. There's a story of a man who has two children. Two sons, in fact. And one of the sons says to his dad, if you heard this in a first century culture, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead so that I could have my inheritance and go off. Why don't you give it to me? And his father does. His father actually gives him his inheritance. He divides his, his, his estate, gives his son his portion of it, and the son takes off a couple days later. He goes off and he lives this life that is morally bankrupt. It's embarrassing to his father, no question about it. Deeply offensive. And after a while, some hardship hits and he comes back with his tail between his legs and he says, I'm sorry. And the father welcomes him back. Jesus uses this story to, to answer the Pharisees this question, to answer these devout people the question, why am I doing this? Here's why. This isn't about a father and son. It's not about a man with sheep, and it's not about a woman with money. This is a story about God, right? It's kind of sneaky. Oh, nobody said God. Yeah, but it's about God. It's about God and the way that God feels. Listen, the way God feels towards humans. These stories are about a deeply emotional attachment. That the Creator God has to humanity. And it goes like this. First of all, God agonizes over lost people. God agonizes over lost people. What would make a shepherd run off and look for one sheep? He needs it. He has to have it. What makes a woman hunt for a, a coin that she's lost? She needs it. She has to have it. But what makes a father long for a son to return? Because he loves him and he agonizes over his loss. But what does it mean for us to be lost? I mean, this is a metaphor, right? This is not, a, it's not an allegory. It's a metaphor. What does it mean to be lost? It means to live life without any awareness of God or God's presence. It doesn't mean that you don't necessarily believe. I mean, a lot of people believe in God. You, you just take a, a poll anywhere and, you know, do you believe in God? You stand on the street corner if you were to find 100 people and ask them. I bet 80 of them, maybe 90 of them would say, I believe in God. But it's not about believing intellectually in God. It's about so committing one's life to God that you actually change the way you order your life. That we actually order our lives differently. So to be lost means to have no, no discernible um, awareness or concern about how God sees your life or sees my life. How do, it doesn't, it, it, a person who's lost is a person who doesn't care. Lives as practically as if God doesn't matter. Now, 
if someone lived like that towards me, you know, I mean, just imagine you. If somebody you knew treated you with such callous disregard, it might make us angry, right? Like, I don't know who she thinks she is, you know. I'm a, you know, she could be nice to me. There's no reason to disregard me or ignore me. You know, I don't know who he thinks he is. You, you would... You might, I know, not you, but I might be tempted to get a little indignant about that. A little a little snooty, a little angry. Like none of you, right. But me, I might. We don't see that in God, do we? Not as God is portrayed in the prodigal son story. God is not one who turns away and says, I don't care. You know, in fact, the father in the prodigal son story, it, it, he's really, he goes beyond himself in, in doing things he shouldn't do. There's this Old te- uh, this uh, not, uh, some people would not call it Old Testament. There is this uh, apocryphal Jewish literature called um, the Wisdom of Sirach, okay? And in it, um, there is this uh, advice that is given to fathers uh, and, and wealthy people. He says, to a son or wife, a brother or friend, do not give power over yourself as long as you live. And do not give your property to another. Listen, not even to your son or your wife. You don't give your stuff away because you don't let anybody have power over you. But in fact, the father does, doesn't he? He, he condescends to this outrageous request. I wish I could have my inheritance now. He gives it to him. There's no, no sense of argument here. But why does he do it? I mean, and what must it have felt like once his son left? He doesn't get angry. He doesn't storm around. He doesn't... In fact, we know later he stands on the porch and he watches every day for the son to come back. Why? Because he loves him. And he agonizes over the fact that he's not returned yet. God agonizes over lost people. It's not apathy. Jesus, why do you hang out with these sorts of folk? Don't you know their reputation? Don't you know what sort of people they are? Because God loves them. God cares about them. The, the, the other thing I notice is, is that, that um, in all the stories, when something is lost, when something that is precious and valuable is lost, the people all respond the same way. The shepherd takes off and he goes and finds a sheep. The woman tears up the house to look for the coin. And the father, even though he doesn't leave the home, he stands out there every day looking for his son to return. You'll miss this. I mean, it's easy to miss 2,000 years later. But notice what the father does. Luke fifteen twenty. While he, that is the son, was still a far way off. He was still way off. His father saw him and was filled with compassion. Listen to this. And he ran. He ran to him. It's easy to miss this because you're like, well, yeah, I mean, that's what you would do, right? You take off running. Not in the first century. Not men of noble character. Not men of dignity. They would never, ever run in public. Uh, Jeremias, a, a German scholar, says, this is a most unusual and undignified procedure. Uh, Ogilvy says this, men, great men never run in public. A quote from Aristotle. And, and, and a professor, uh, Alice McKenzie from Southern Methodist, wrote this. She said, the father's behavior is strange. It is not the way the male head of a household would act in Jesus' time. You would not run in public. This man is throwing off all dignity. 
I tried to imagine what sort of uh, contemporary uh, analogy might be made. Imagine a middle-aged man, not like a middle-aged man from the, um, from the cover of the magazines, but like a middle-aged man who's, you know, kind of, you know, doughy like me, you know, walking down the street with no shirt on, you know, downtown. You'd be like, oh, please, you know, stop, right? Don't do that. Um, you know, it would, be, it would be like somebody who, I, I saw that uh, the, the new uh, Duchess of Cambridge, Catherine, was greeting this little child, and um, he sort of was pointing at his brain. You know how little children do? They're like straight up through the nose. And uh, so there's this picture of her kneeling down and this little child. Imagine a, a grown adult doing that in public. You mean, how? T- oh, really? Come on. This father runs after his son. He runs after him. He's filled with compassion. He runs to him. He throws all dignity to the side. He wraps his arms around him and kisses him on the neck. The only other place this is found in Scripture, kisses him on the neck, is when Esau finds his brother Jacob. Jacob thinks he's going to kill him, and he runs, and he falls on him and kisses him on the neck. Jesus knows this echo is going to ring in his ears. ears. His father loves him. Why do you eat with these rebels, these sinners, these... These immoral, scandalous people. Because God loves them. You think they're trash. He does not think that. He doesn't think they're trash at all. He values them. He thinks that they're treasures. That's why I eat with them. Just one more thing. This emotional attachment is an investment. God not only cares about it, He not only is passionate about their return, not only agonizes when we're gone, but He rejoices when we return. Think about that. How do we bring joy to the heart of God when we're reconciled to Him? What brings God happiness? What brings God joy? The reconciliation of the world to God. When, when, we, when we help to... Ma- Any of you matchmakers, you know? Like, oh boy, you know, you need this young guy and this young girl. i got to get those two together, you know? And it just makes you happy if ever it works out. Some of you, maybe. You're happy. You know, you're, and then maybe, you're, maybe somebody else is upset. But you're happy. There's something about bringing people to, to Of seeing people who come together. God delights. He's joyful. Again, uh, when the, father was, the son was way off, the father runs to him. Try to imagine the scene. Um, the father puts on this robe, this ring, these sandals. Get the fatted calf, kill it. Let's eat and celebrate, he says. And then the older brother shows up. You have to imagine, the party's already moved inside, right? The older brother shows up. And, and here, verse 26, or 25 rather, the elder son was in the field. And when he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. In Greek music, symphone. He heard the symphony. He heard symphony and dancing. I mean, I don't know how you hear dancing. It must have been kind of joyous, right? A little cloggy kind of sort of thing. Dancing around it and delighting. It's a party. What is it like when someone who's lost is reconciled to God? Well, it's like a party in heaven. That God delights at this. He's so thrilled. All right, so what all this to us? What's all this to us other than uh, interesting little anecdotes? Well, it's this. Whatever God is interested in, it's in people. God is invested in people. 
And he's invested in reconciliation. He wants, I know this is crazy, he wants to reconcile the whole world to himself. And you know the people that we say, yeah, but not them. No, them too. Yeah, but, you know, that Middle Eastern part of the world, maybe we could just live without them. No! Those people who hang out downtown with signs, you know, we'll work for food, you know, and you don't think they're really going to work. What's them too? Whatever else Holy Trinity ought to be about, whatever else we ought to be about as a community of faith, it ought to be about taking up this work of reconciling the world to God. St. Paul says it, right? He has given us this ministry of reconciliation. The second thing it ought to remind us of is that God loves us individually. He loves me and you and you and you and you and you and you and you. Individually, as people, that He has a passionate love for you just as you are. He, he, he knows all your rebellions, and I know yours aren't as many as mine, but He knows them. He knows mine too. We have regular dialogue about these sort of things. And yet, He still loves me and He still loves you. He loves us the way we are. Again, like I said last week, He doesn't want to leave us the way we are, but He loves us. I think finally, it ought to remind us that in God's eyes, all people are precious. Every single one of us. Every single human soul is precious to God. Every single one is treasure. And not a single one, not a single person in God's eyes is trash. Not now or ever. And of that, we ought to be certain. And we should never, ever forget it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.